G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host Adit. Today is Tuesday the 12th of September and our topics this week are an El Nino declaration is likely. What the hell does that even mean and what does it mean for you? And we're going to get into the initial draft of the Combating Misinformation and Disinformation Bill 2023. I know that sounds really boring, but I can assure you it's actually very, very interesting. Of course, we have our Two Ticks Town Talk, and then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with our deet and finish off, as always, with the Forex Bottle Top question. But before we get into all of that, let's catch up on the last week. What's been going on with you, Ardeet? G'day, DK. I, for the first time, uh, participated in some docking of some lamb's tails. Uh, Ah. Yeah, listeners might remember that uh, there's some neighbours down the the street, sort of, I suppose it's essentially a a hobby hobby farm. They've got a few ewes of three different varieties, and I can't remember what they are. One's sort of a a brown one, one's a black-faced one, and one's a a very (laughs) sheep-looking Sheep, and they've uh, they had uh, 10, 10 lambs, so they were away, and they got someone looking after the house, and they said, "Oh, do you mind going down and giving her a hand with a couple of other people if um, if you're available?" I said, "Yep, love to give that a go." I mean, you know, it's always interesting to do something new. So uh, they've got a couple of paddocks down there, so we lucked out in the beginning. We we're able to get the most of the lambs into into one paddock and then sort of we didn't have a dog or anything. We were the dogs. <laughs> 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 Managed to drive them up into a little area where we could uh, uh, contain them a bit more and then ran around like mad things trying to catch little bleating uh, <laughs> lambs. And uh, then you, you put the, the band on um, just down to the – they're doing it uh, the way so that sort of recommended you you go down the third whatever you call that thing in the the tail so it still um, covers their their bum and everything and their their fresh lambs so um, they have about twenty minutes of discomfort then it goes numb and they sort of forget about it uh, so yeah the the second lot wasn't quite so easy to. Uh, to, to catch, I know they'd sort of seen what had happened, had yeah, they? Yeah, exactly. Because we we tried tried to lure them in with a bit of food, and um, there was there was one of the, the the brown lambs, and she was she was suspicious from the beginning. And after she saw what happened to the other, she was she was having no part of it whatsoever. She had a, she had a black one and a, a white one. They're all serviced by the same ram that they've got called Rambo. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think the the next door neighbour was enjoying herself because I noticed when we were trying to get the uh, second paddock's worth of them in, uh, she was out. She pulled up a chair out on the veranda and gave us a, a wave <laughs> and sat sat, by, sat back watching as as we had absolutely no chance until purely by fluke they ran into uh, an area that had a had a gate. And we were able to just <laughs> say, "Quick, shut the gate!" Uh, so yeah, we were able we were able to get them done after that. But yeah, look, cat, trying to catch them out in a paddock was zero chance. So yeah, that was that was something something interesting, something I haven't done before, something that was uh, fun to do and uh, and a bit of amusement. And plus, uh, 
she she threw on some uh, some soup and some uh, some quiche and a bit of a feed afterwards. So that was all right. Oh, that always makes it worth it. I I know from my youth, um, my I don't have a huge amount of farm uh, experience, uh, but my. I did spend uh, my my mum's uh, sort of best friend growing up had a farm, and uh, occasionally you know sort of twice a year in the school holidays we might go up there for a couple of days and I used to love it, and they had sheep and and I guess it was a bit of a hobby farm they had a couple of cows and and sheep and some chickens and things. Um, and and we used to chase these poor sheep around the paddock and try and catch them, and we never did. We'd never ever caught one. We'd we'd chase the chickens too, and we'd catch the chickens, but we wouldn't catch the sheep. Um, so I can imagine how hard it would be, and not graceful, not graceful at all. It's very no. it's, it's hard work trying to chase the sheep. I mean, that's why we have the dogs that do it. Of course, they make it look easy. Um, but yeah, sheep, and even even if you can get one in a corner, they're bloody quick and and they're hard to grab onto too. You yep. think you know all fluffed up, they'd be easy to grab, but it's not. You know, your fingers aren't as strong as you think when you're trying to grab something that you know weighs 50, 60 kilos and it's running very determined to get away from you, sort of thing. So, um, I think you did well to get them all without a sheepdog, if I'm honest. Look, we were um, we were pretty pleased. I think we had, we were lucky. We had a couple of wins for. Um... Uh, on a, on a couple of ones, if they hadn't have hadn't have gone into that little uh, corralable area on the the second one, uh, I think we'd have been telling the people on the thing we only got ha- got half of them done. So, yeah, and, but, you know, you take your wins where you you get it. What about you? How's your week? My week's been terrible. I've had oh, influenza. Uh, my daughter. Is that uh, the Northern Territory version of influenza? <laughs> it is one of the streams. There's a number of different different strains of influenza. Uh, we were warned Look at this how they year. Do the influenza, right? Like they yeah. always <laughs> we, we, I mean, we were warned. They did say influenza A strain, particularly this year, was going to be quite nasty. Um, and my daughter picked it up from daycare, uh, and her cousin also goes to the same daycare they're in the same class um and he got it she got it she gave it to me because uh, i was thinking ah oh, it's just a, you know it's just a cold sort of thing uh no it was full-blown influenza right she gave it to me my son got it my wife didn't and my other son didn't so with three out of five in the house were crook i was sort of a day or two behind the other the other kids um and i'll tell you what i don't do well with getting sick. Oh, I'm a big man flu plo- type bloke. Okay. Uh, and I just struggle with the idea of not being able to do anything, not being productive, not, you know, I- I'm I'm impossible to just sit around and do nothing, basically. Drives me insane. Mm. Um, so I'm the worst patient. I don't help myself. Uh, and then, as you can probably hear, my voice is a little bit croaky because it turns out it's gone to my lungs and now I've got bronchitis. So um, I'm all right. I'm like, I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm you know, it's still still getting on and doing stuff and, and, and all that. So um, it's just been a, a week of frustration mostly, I guess, for myself. Though I'll tell you what, there was a couple of days where I was basically bedridden, uh, fevers and all that sort of stuff. Um, oh, I've had a full full-blown fever dreams as well and everything and i haven't had that in a long time um and 
it's definitely not something I would want to, you know, experience again. Uh, I have before. I've had influenza A before, and it, it's a nasty, nasty bug. Um, and I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't wish it on it. Like, I think at one point my my uh, temperature was was over forty degrees Celsius. Like I was, it was wow, very that's serious. It's very high. That that's high enough that you are meant to go to the hospital. Yeah, um, but I know at the hospital there's not really much they can do for you. Um, they're just going to keep pumping you full of fluids and and paracetamol basically to try and keep you that that temperature under control. So we just basically did that at home, and my yeah. wife was was really good at making sure that you know my temperature was coming down and that sort of stuff. But it does suck when you're in a situation like that. So uh, I normally get a flu shot. I didn't this year. She did. Mm. I'm not here to tell you that, that that's the difference, but. Maybe I don't know. So next year, I'll Maybe. be definitely sure that I'll be getting my flu shot when it comes <laughs> around. Um, because you know, even if it makes it a little bit milder, what I had this year was horrendous. So don't recommend it at all. It's, it's interesting how uh, how few degrees from your regular body temperature it takes before you actually start having a problem. Like four. Four degrees. What's body temperatures around about the thirty six, thirty six and a half? Mm. I, th- I think. Yeah, you know, yeah. Thirty six and a half is about normal. You yep. throw three, four, or five degrees on top of that, and suddenly you've got a real problem for your body. It's not much. No, it, it is interesting. It's um, your body regulation is a process called homeostasis. Uh, where it tries to keep everything in balance and beautiful, and it's not just temperature. Of course, that includes things like. Um, blood alkaline levels and salt levels and you know sugar levels and all those sorts of things and it just takes a tiny amount of any one of those things to completely throw everything out and and your entire body to just fail and and crash and all that and it's it's a really really interesting um topic but it's not one of our topics today so let's talk about the El Nino declaration that's likely to come in the next couple of weeks from the Bureau. But what does that even mean to all of our lovely listeners that are here, of course, based in Australia? If you're outside Australia, well, it might mean something very different. So El Nino, which is Spanish for little boy, and El La Nina, which is Spanish for little girl girl are two phrases that have been tossed around a lot in Australia uh, over the last few years and it will continue to be tossed around over the next few years. Uh, What we know about the duo, of course, are responsible for severe weather. They're often brought up uh, like now when uh, the seasons are changing and the cycles are changing and they definitely bring some extreme heat for one, an intense rain and cool uh, weather for the other. So how I remember it is little boys are really annoying and often like to fight. They get hot-headed, if I should say. So El Nino brings severe heat, and La Nina, a lovely little girl, cools things down, um, and that's how I remember them at least. So let's see what the Bureau has to say so that we can understand exactly what these are. So Australia's weather is influenced by many climate drivers. 
El Nino and La Nina are perhaps the strongest influence on a year-to-year climate variability in Australia. They are part of a natural cycle known as the El Nino Southern Oscillation and are associated with sustained period, many months of warming in the case of uh, El Nino or cooling in the case of La Nina in the central and eastern tropical Pacific, so in the ocean. The uh, ENSO cycle loosely operates over a time scales of one to eight years. So we can be in here for the long haul. And the thing is, is we don't know. So what does an El Nino typically mean? It means reduced rainfall, warmer temperatures, shift in temperature extremes. An increased risk of frost. This is generally associated with a lack of cloud cover, especially at night. Ah, Yeah, because as obviously night comes, if there's no clouds, most of the heat basically just escapes into space. Uh, Whereas um, if there are cloud covers, that heat is kind of retained here on Earth. The good news is that it does generally reduce the tropical cyclones that do come through. So for our friends up north, that can be really beneficial. Uh, There is a later monsoon season. Uh, Of course, there's a hugely increased fire danger for southeast Australia. And of course, that also means that there is a decreased alpine snows because, of course, everything else is warmer. So you say, this is all very cool, DK. What do I care? (laughs) Why do I need to know about this? And the simple fact is because if you live anywhere near any areas that are prone to bushfires, which is basically all of southeast Australia, um, and aren't a fan of scorching above average temperatures, then El Nino probably isn't (laughs) the best news that you would have. Uh, We need to remember that Australia's last El Nino was in 2019. It was the country's hottest year on record. And, of course, it led to the infamous Black Summer bushfires when more than 3,000 homes were lost and 34 people died. I think we all remember the 2020 bushfires. Mm. Uh, Scott Morrison doesn't, though, of course. Ah. Uh, But I should say as well, it's not all doom and gloom just yet. Dr. Francis Chu, a hydrologist at the CSIRO, has said, the good news is that wet conditions from three successive La Nina years have filled our reservoirs and provided what is essentially a buffer for the system. We know that if El Nino is declared, it'll bring heat. It doesn't guarantee a shocker of a fire season, only that the risk is increased. After three back-to-back years of La Nina, dams are still full and the ground is still reasonably moist. And while the grass and forest has grown quickly, more drying is required to turn that all into fuel. That said, it's also not time to be complacent. Get out into your garden, clean out those gutters, and remove any of the dry tinder. Now is also the time to secure your property and have a bushfire survival plan. Bloody oath. Yep. I don't care if you live in the city. I don't care if you don't live in the bush. Every single household in Australia needs a bushfire survival plan. 
okay? You need to ask yourself, are you planning on staying or leaving? If you are going to leave, which is the what we most recommend, you need to organize a bushfire evacuation kit. If you're going to stay, you need a bushfire emergency kit. These things, there are different things that need to go in each of them. Being prepared is the best thing you can do to ensure that you and your family are safe. Because at the end of the day, we can rebuild your house, but we can't rebuild the person that you are. We don't want anyone to get hurt. And whilst this year, even though if, a, if a El Nino is declared, we may be fighting from bushfires, largely speaking, this year, uh, because there is a lot of moisture still in the ground. It is worth remembering we've had three years of a lot of rain, a lot of growth. There's a lot of flammable material out there. And as it starts to dry out, these bushfire risk is going to be elevated. So if you don't have a bushfire plan, there is a huge amount of resources online. I think most states have a really comprehensive list that you can go to. If you just if you just yep. Google bushfire survival plan, there's one from I think every state and territory. I think largely they're they're very similar. Um, go through, organize yourself, organize your your family, organize your kids, organize your pets. Have a plan, you know, because if you don't and something like this happens, that's unfortunately when we do see a lot of loss of life, a lot of loss of and destruction of property and everything like that. So you've heard it here. You have no excuse. Get yourself organized. Yeah, look, that's one of the, uh, you know, I don't dislike everything that government does. And one of the things that they do have some good information on is preparing for things uh, like this. They have some very usable suggestions. So as DK says, um, yeah, Google that, look it up, find your your local one which is is tailored to you. I would also under I'd also um, emphasise that it doesn't matter if you're not in a bushfire prone area, and there's there's a couple of reasons why it doesn't matter. Um, you need to be prepared for those instances where you think, oh, we're just, you know, we're just nicking down to, um, or nicking down, yeah, we're, we're travelling a couple of hours to see some some relatives. If you're going to be going to a bushfire area, or you're going to be going through uh, areas where there's uh, there's actually risk of bushfire, you need to consider that. So if you've got relatives that you you see or friends you see, and there's a bushfire um, prone area there that you're not normally in, you still have to make some plans for that. The other thing that you need to consider is if there are particularly high bushfires around you, it can affect the transport of goods. It can affect uh, services. Uh, you know, uh, emergency services have their attention elsewhere. Trucks can't get through. Uh, you need to have your, your basics at home, doesn't you know, it doesn't have to be some crazy, oh, we're going to sit in the bunker for a couple of months. But if you've got uh, three days, one week, two weeks worth of uh, just basic supplies, you're ahead of everybody else. And it's one of those things, if it doesn't happen, fine. You haven't, uh, haven't spent a whole lot of money on it, particularly if you're cycling it through. But if it does happen, it's one of those things that <laughs> when it's going on, that's the worst possible time to actually do something uh, about it. 
So yeah, look, I just wanted to emphasise that. I think that's a, gr- a good point. Whether you're in the out in the bush, on the edges of the country, or actually in the city, there's something that you may be impacted by, and it's also the type of preparation that it serves you for situations other than bushfire. So that's yes. sort of all. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And, and we did see this recently with the COVID nineteen pandemic. You know, Perfect. the people, yep. the people that did have some of the stuff set aside, you know, survived the initial rush of of uh, panic buying and all of that sort of stuff a little bit easier. I'm not going to say it was particularly easy for for everyone, but if you did have a you know a small amount of stuff, go and get one of those. Um, uh, you know those plastic tub bins they sell everywhere. Yep. Go and buy one of them. Put put a battery operator radio, some batteries, some bottled water. You know some basic things that you need, um, all in one place. So it's there, ready to go, um, and you've got at least some basic necessities that you can use. Also, I think it's also worth saying if you do, if you are listening and you do live in the city and you're saying to myself, yeah, but that's well and good, DK, but I live in in Bondi Beach or something like that, you know, nothing's ever going to happen to me. And the reality is you're probably right. But what what might be mindful uh, and what your role might be is do you have family that live in a bushfire area that may need to come to you if they're affected by the bushfire? Um if you've got family that live in 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 the bush and their house is destroyed or they have to evacuate, where are they going to go? Are they going to come to you? And if they are going to come to you, are you prepared for that to happen? You know, realistically, at a, at a very short period of time, maybe within within a couple of hours and a drop of the hat type situation. So I think there's something that and these sort of discussions amongst your family are things are just good to have so that. Like Adit said, you know, the worst time to plan is when the plan is in action. Um, having having some basic uh, idea of what you can do and, and, and being flexible with it is just, you know, you're silly not to, basically. Um, yeah, and, look, and like depending said, on how you feel about that family, your preparation may either be uh, extra supplies or... Or some form of weaponry to keep them at bay. So, <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe you're going to upgrade the your security system on your house and <laughs> yeah, and, that, and the locks a... and things like that. But yeah, um, watch Home Alone for some inspiration. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> I do think it is it is something that everyone should have a, a kit like this, like you know the quote unquote disaster kit. Whether you live in a cyclone prone area or or, or a flood prone area or a bushfire, a lot of these things are the similar sort of stuff that you need if I'm honest you know it comes back to to basic necessities like bottled water trying to rely on your mobile phone is not a great idea as well um, as we know congestion in the network even if the network isn't down congestion in the network is a really big problem and for most of us our mobile phones are our only source of, of telecommunications these days landlords uh, landlines sorry aren't very common so it is my it is something that would be really useful to buy a battery powered uh, radio so that you can you know tune into to the emergency broadcast or something like that or you can get all these fancy like wind up ones and stuff like that that don't don't require batteries and stuff i think it's just now's a good time to start thinking about it because whilst the risk is higher already the reality is we're probably not going to have a terrible terrible bushfire season like we had in 2020 uh just yet but all of the um 
all of the conditions are going to be there in the next sort of 12 to 18 months. And that's something we need to all be concerned about. And just speaking from my own personal experience, in the last week, we were uh, four-wheel driving on a local beach and the national park right next door actually uh, it, it had been struck by lightning the night before and sort of smoldering, but it blew up into a quite a reasonably large bushfire. Um, and I was sitting there on the beach looking at my kids, looking at the fire going, it's only a couple of Ks away and we're not driving in that direction, but I don't know how quickly this is going to spread. But thankfully, uh, fire crews were on the ground and in the air. Uh, we had a couple of helicopter bombers come out and they did get the fire under control really, really quickly. And it was actually really cool to watch. But that's not always something that may happen depending on the area that you're in. So it's no, just... you have to be able to at least do some some basics. Look, there's, there's, there's things you're not going to be able to be prepared for, for um, and nor can you really be expected to to be prepared. But if you've, as we said, look look up on online, but if you just uh, apply a little bit of uh, thought to it, if you've got a battery-powered radio, uh, a couple of slabs of just bottled water that you get from the supermarket for, you know, whatever they are, 20 bucks a, a, a slab, a couple of, of cans of stuff that you know at least you can, can shovel down that your family can, can get through, and a bit of, of rice or something like that. Even if you've got that and nothing else, you're still way, way ahead of the person who wakes up and thinks, Bloody hell, I've got to do something and goes down to an empty supermarket. Exactly. Exactly. Having a bag of rice, a small bag, you know, like a kilo of rice, if it's sealed, those last for, for forever, you know, um, as long as it's properly packaged and stuff like that. And like like I did said, a slab of water. I thought, seriously, they're really, really cheap. It's it's worth, you know, worth having. Also, if you're a person that does a lot of camping and stuff, you've probably got a lot of the equipment that you already need, but you may not have those things. You may not have some food and some water put away, you know, stored. So these things are worth, like I said, go and have a look online. It's seriously five minutes and you'll have a plan. Discuss it with your family, your direct family inside your household, or even your roommates and things like that. Discuss it with uh, your family further afield about what their plans are and how you guys can coordinate, how you can coordinate maybe if you can't actually communicate with each other, those sorts of things. Mm. Because like Adit said, if you've got even a basic plan in order, you're miles ahead of a lot of other people, unfortunately, um, but that can work in your benefit depending on what's going on. And at the end of the day, I would hate to find out that any of our listeners, something has happened to them in a bushfire season uh, oh, because, you know, it's a tragedy every year when these things happen. And quite frankly, as much as we say they shouldn't happen, they do happen, but we can try and mitigate some of that risk uh, by by being a little bit prepared. Also, if you don't live in Australia and you're one of our international listeners and you're thinking, wow, this sounds really, really scary, think about what happens locally. We know a lot of the world is affected by more extreme weather events. There's yep. recently earthquakes overseas. There's been flooding. Oh, oh, there's been God, those. hurricanes and all that sort of stuff. So to me, in my mind, I can deal with a bushfire. An earthquake sounds way, way worse. Um oh, God. And again, a lot of the basic things that you will need are the same around the world. Uh, you know, humans are the same basically everywhere. So 
it's worth just just putting five minutes aside, getting yourself a little bit prepared uh, so that everyone can be happy and healthy long term. Now, speaking of things that have happened long term, <laughs> I think it might be time for our Two Ticks Town Talk. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. All right, we travel over to South Australia this week for our Two Ticks Town Talk, which is about Udnadatta. So a couple of uh, bits before I get on to what caught my eye. It's a small remote outback town in South Australia, about uh, a thousand k, roughly six fifty miles nor northwest of the state capital of Adelaide by road. Um, and prior to the arrival of the Europeans, it was home to the Arabona people. And today, the town has uh, people f- uh, w- with uh, a re- Ararente, uh, Atacacha, sorry, Atakaranija, Loricha, and Pintanjara family ties. There was two meanings of the <laughs> the name of the uh, town recorded. Um, one apparently derives from the Aboriginal word Utnadada, meaning yellow blossom of the mulga, but that's been disputed because mulga trees don't grow anywhere near the town. Uh, (laughs) and the alternative meaning could be why (laughs) the alternative meaning is uh kudna data or kudna data meaning dead man's poo the first (laughs) first two (laughs) syllables encompass rotten or excreta and the second to refer to there uh just two two factoids uh data has got a hot desert climate uh has recorded the highest reliably measured maximum temperature in australia 50.7 degrees celsius oh yeah second of january 1960 which uh was unequaled until january 22 when the same temperature was measured at onslow in uh western australia uh the second factoid is the name Udnadatta has been used uh, as a name for a crater on the planet Mars. So that was, oh, that's cool. that was yeah, that was an interesting thing. But what caught my uh, eyes was, and I'll, I'll group these lines, uh, was lines in the sand. And I'll group these lines under the, the catch-all of the Udnadatta track. First line in the sand, the Udnadatta track itself, that's an unsealed 614-kilometre, 380-mile outback road in the Australian state of South Australia. It connects Marla on the, in the northwest via Udnadatta to Mari in the southeast. The second line in the, the sand was the Central Australian Railway, which was built between 1878 and 1929 enclosed in 1980. It was 1,200k long, about 770 miles uh, of narrow-gauge railway between Port Augusta and Alice Springs, and the part of its route followed the Udnadatta track. Uh, Later, there was a standard line um, duplicated uh, to the south of... uh, So, duplicated to the southern section from uh, Port Augusta to Murray, and that's part of the um, uh, where are we? The the, the current uh, Adelaide to uh, Port Augusta to Alice Springs line, 
it's now known as the the GAN. It used to be called. Ah, the, I was going to say, is that yes. the, where the GAN runs, right? Yeah, it used to be called. Apparently, it used to be called the new GAN, and the one that went through Udna Data was known as the the old GAN. But it just uh, sorry was known as the GAN, but now they've taken it over. It's called the GAN, and the Udna Data one is called the old GAN. The third line in the sand were the Afghan camelies in Australia. So before the um, trains came in, were available, uh, we had camelies in Australia known as Afghans or Gans, which is where we get the uh, name for that railway lane. Ah, line. Yeah. I didn't actually know that. It, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, right. it's a, a shortening, a shortening of um, Afghan. Uh, I did have in my notes somewhere that, uh, yeah, they were commonly referred to as Afghans, even though the majority of them originated from the far western parts of uh, British India, um, Pakistan. <laughs> so they weren't even Afghanis. Oh, well, some of them were. Some of them were. There was, uh, there was also, yeah, Pashtuns, Balochs. Uh, many were from Afghanistan itself, so it was look it was okay. a catch-all. Some were even from Egypt and and Turkey. Um, they would transport, you know, cart goods, transport wool bales by camel trains, as the name implies. Basically, a line of camels, similar to what you see going across the the desert in a whole lot of those those films. Uh, they'd set up camel breeding stations, rest house outposts. Um, they were throughout inland Australia, but they also followed that path of the uh, where the Udnadana track is, because it had water holes and it was a a known path. Particularly as we'll find out a little bit later on why. The fourth line in the set was the overland telegraph line. Um, this was a telegraphy system a telegraphy system to send messages over long distance using cables and electric signals. It went 3,200 k's, about 2,000 miles between uh, Darwin and Adelaide. Uh, it was completed in 1872. So you can see that we're working backwards with these lines in the sand, and that's deliberate. It allowed fast communication between Australia and the rest of the world. And then when that overland telegraph line was uh, linked to the Java to Darwin submarine line cable several months uh, later, communication times with Europe dropped from months to hours. So essentially Australia was no longer isolated from the rest of the world. It was considered one of the great engineering feats of 19th century Australia and probably the most significant milestone in the history of telegraphy in Australia. Going yeah. from months to hours is a huge reduction. That's crazy. Also, just like the scale of the engineering oh. project, because we're talking like, you know, like like what we have power lines today, you know, like telegraph poles being put in, lines strung between them for, how long did you say? 13, 1,300 kilometres? That's not No, 3,200 kilometres. 3,200 kilometres. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yes. my goodness. That's a long way. That's a hell of a long way. Across the... 
the right up the guts of Australia. Yeah. And and over mountains and you know, oh, it's not exactly uh, easy country to, 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 to not only to live in but to build in. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. So I think the uh, accolade of being uh, the most significant milestone in the history of telegraphy in Australia is probably a, probably an apt accolade. Yep. Uh, the fifth line in the sand and the final and <laughs> easily the oldest is something I didn't know about, but when I read about it, I thought, well, of course. The Udna Data Track, and it's not the only one, but the Udna Data Track is one of uh, many Aboriginal trade routes. So I'll read a little bit here from, um, uh, I'll, I'll quote the sources, but it was, uh, I, I got stuff from Wikipedia and uh, Odyssey Traveller and AussieTowns.com.au. Um Tens of thousands of years, Aboriginal tribes visited the place where Udnadatta is located as a reliable source of water on their trade route. There was no settlement in Udnadatta itself at that, that stage. For Australian Aborigines, a trade route was an ancient and pre-designated passage through the landscape, often mapped out in song for the purposes of meeting at uh, particular locations of great cultural and mythical historical importance, ceremonially exchanging, renewing and reinforcing friendship rights rights with other Aboriginal tribal groups, clans or nations. So at these locations they'd swap goods or objects or dreaming songs that they considered valuable for spiritual and cultural and artistic worth. Many of the most successful exploits of settlers and explorers was thanks to making their use of older Aboriginal trade routes. So in this one with the Udnadatta track, yeah. John, John McDougall's student, uh, Stuart, uh, one of the first Europeans to go across Australia, followed the Aboriginal route that led traders from spring to spring across the South Australian uh, outback. That route was later used by the Cameliers to haul goods into Central Australia. Um, all this extensive trade meant that Aboriginal people had a vast knowledge of the world in which they lived, way beyond their lo- locality. They used the stars to guide them on long journeys. They had understanding of places they didn't have experience of. There was one example that they quoted here. There was an early West Australian settler, George Moore, um, who, exer- who, observed that, uh, who observed that the natives are all aware that Australia is an island. Um, in 1840, men near Fowler's Bay, South Australia, correctly assured j- Aboriginal men, correctly assured Edward John Eyre that there was no inland sea. And while Sturt recalled that Toonda, his guide in 84, was able to accurately draw out a plan of the Murray-Darling system, even though he wasn't over there, they knew this. Trade routes were a new thing to me. Uh, The other thing that was a sort of subset of this was songlines, basically singing the track, the route, the landmarks, what to be aware of, and while it was valuable. And that trading of songs 
uh, in, in our you know, modern Western terms, can be thought of as trading the intellectual property to assist uh, traveling. Uh, is amazing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, that I'd never ever considered what? it like that. But instead of drawing a map and writing it down, they would sing the map. And that is just blew me away. Oh, what a clever way of recording history. Wow. Yeah, that's yep. that's pretty special. Yeah, it, it was. It was one. It's one of the joys of uh, doing this. This two ticks town talk. You sort of catch the little thing. You think, hang on, that I haven't heard of that before. Do a little bit of a deep dive into it, and you think, wow, just had absolutely no idea. And that to me was yeah, Udna Dada, the lines in the sand, and that's why I led back to that because I thought the the trade routes and the song lines were. Two areas of knowledge I didn't have before this, and I think that's pretty damn impressive. That's so impressive. Do you know how many people live there now? Because it's quite small. You know, I couldn't find. I I did actually look for the population. It had when the when the railway uh, went. A lot of the the local Aboriginal people said, "Well, we still want to keep this. Um, still want to keep this settlement." That was. Uh, when I was struggling, it was the home of the Arabana people. That's where I was struggling with the uh, Arente and her Karinja, Luricha and Pintanjara that uh, a number of them came around there. So my understanding is that it's uh, predominantly an Aboriginal settlement now. Um, yeah. But I couldn't find the population. So I, I can't imagine it's going to be huge, but I don't know the answer to that. No, I'm looking at it on Google Maps. It doesn't look like, you know, th- there would be sort of maybe a hundred houses or so. It's it's very small, even yeah, for it's our tiny. Yeah. two ticks town talk. It's it's a sm- very small town. So I can't imagine it's more than, uh, you know, two hundred, three hundred people, if that. It, it, yeah, but that's wow. what I put my money on. So yeah, oh, I'm glad you. I'm glad you're uh, amazed as well because I was I was truly amazed at that. Yeah, it's just such a cool – I think it's so interesting, you know, cultures around the world that they've – you know, a lot of the human stories we have have had the same issues, you know, uh, about how to transfer knowledge and things like that. And just different cultures come up with different ways of doing that. And, of course, today, you know, we have things like the internet and books and podcasts. Yep. Um, but – the idea of storing that sort of information in a song that is oh. then easily given to another person uh, and also easily protected as well is mm. such a such a different way of thinking about things that we're used to from our sort yep. of uh, Anglo uh, sort of, you know, we would think of, oh, there's a secret map, and if you find it, you can get yeah. the forbidden knowledge and all this kind of stuff. Like, ooh, there's a scroll hidden in a chest, you know, that sort of stuff. And it's like, no, in this culture, it's like there's a man on a hill, and he'll sing you a song. And if you remember the song, now you've got the forbidden knowledge and, the, and the, you know, you know how to get to the place or, or whatever it is. And that, I think yeah. that's a really cool, that's, yeah, that's something special. Imagine how your ear, how your ears would prick up if you if you understood this this concept. You know, you'd been on different uh, 
walks with your your family and tribe and um suddenly you you were at at one of these meetings or that and you heard someone singing this different song and you think oh i've seen that hill in the distance we've never gone there but then in your head you're listening to this song and you're thinking oh hang on there's another hill beyond there then there's a waterhole then there's a little river then there's a long walk and you're painting this picture of somewhere you haven't ever been before like uh i think it was sturt's guide being able to say look here's here's how the yeah the murray darling is um just from a song uh, it's bloody impressive it is very impressive and i imagine you know it's not um they're not, probably not the sort of songs that we're familiar with in a modern day it's you know they're probably more um, oh, honestly, I can't even imagine the sort of song that it would be. But, but no, regardless, it's such a just a. I don't know. There's something so almost like ethereal and spiritual about the idea that mm. the knowledge is transferred in a song, as opposed to um, even even just like a, a, a discussion. Like oh, I'll tell you where it is. For me, the idea of of getting from one place to another is very much a concept uh, that involves understanding the landscape or, or, or seeing the landscape as it's as it's uh, sort of mapped out, you know? And I guess that's Ooh. just from from, you know, the culture we have today of of satellite photos and, 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 and all that sort of stuff. I mean, right now I'm using Google Maps to look at the town. Um, but, of course, the, those sorts of things are very modern inventions and these people didn't have anything like that. Instead, they would, you know, use landmarks, I'm sure, or something like that. And as a result, to record those, um, they would make a song, which is also like, you know, cartographers in in uh, European times have been highly revered for their skill in map making and things like that. I would imagine uh, the the song maker in this case, uh, oh, which would be yeah. the version of their cartographer, would probably be highly revered as well. You know, the 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 arbiter of of this knowledge uh, of these songs, and oh, you know, good point. It, it's just such a different way of thinking about the world that I just find it so interesting. It's really cool. So, oh, God, look, I thought you'd find it interesting. I, I was, as I said, I was a little bit blown away by it. It just, it just made my head think of all so many different paradigms that are just vastly different to uh, how our sort of you know, Western view of the world is. But it's also immediately understandable. You, I loved your reaction. Went, oh, I think you said, oh, of course, or something like that. When you, so it dawned on you, and I thought, I know how that felt because I read that. And I thought, wow, song lines. Okay, I get that. It's yeah. It, it's one of those things that uh, sometimes, like you'll come across an invention of some sort you know like some little gadget or something and it'll it just clicks and you go how did Ooh. this not how is this not obvious before now you know um and i think so much of the things that we create are a bit like that they're, they're so intuitive that you question how no one had considered it beforehand <laughs> and i feel like this is one of those things of course you'd you know we're talking about a culture that doesn't 
doesn't really have a written language because paper wasn't really a thing that kind of existed in their culture or the 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 you know the value of coming up with some sort of paper based uh, too hard not worth it too hard to transport da 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 culture is very different but a song makes so much sense and of course like of course that's the thing um, because it's the simplest way of doing it. And that's at the end of the day, that's what people do. They'll figure out the the most efficient way of whatever it is that we're doing. And in this case, it's you know getting from one place to another without a map that you're physically holding, because we don't have paper or anything like that. Uh, I'm sure there's probably different because again, I think we should stress this in our, uh, for our international listeners. Uh, Aboriginal culture is incredibly diverse. There's there's hundreds yep. and hundreds of, of different uh, groups or nations as uh, is probably the easiest way to refer to them as. And of course, different they they are culturally different across the continent of Australia. So some groups would have you know did have writing systems that use animal skins and paper bark trees and things like that. So we shouldn't say that's not a thing because it definitely is. But I think it's such an elegant elegant and beautiful way of doing it there's something like like i said uh, almost spiritual about the idea of a song leading to where you are um just make sure you get the lyrics right because you could end up in the middle of nowhere otherwise ah yes that's right you don't want to um you don't want to be held responsible for singing misinformation that's exactly right so Let's move on. Let's look at the initial draft of the Combating Misinformation and Disinformation Bill 2023. Now, full disclosure, I didn't have time to read the entire whole draft bill. Uh, It's hundreds of pages long. So I'm really relying mostly on the content of a journalist called Fergus Ryan, who wrote this up in the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's website. Mm. Now, that disclosed, it was barely a day had rolled by since the government actually dropped its first draft of the combating misinformation and disinformation bill when the critics swooped in like a pack of seagulls at a picnic. Jordan, Professor Jordan Peterson chimed in and he said, and I quote, hey, peasants, your opinions, hell, your facts are fake news on Twitter in response to the announcement. From there, the commentary on this bill just spiraled into a delightful frenzy. Uh Peter Credlin said that the bill sets up camera to be backup sensor ready to urge the big tech companies to engage in the cancellation of wrong speak. He continues the Ministry of Truth clamps down on free expression. That was actually his headline in the Australian, the newspaper. Sorry, just a correction. Um, Peter is Peter with an A. It's a she. Oh, it's Peter as a as a woman. Ah, there you go. I didn't. I, do you know what? I should have known that because it's written down here, and I've never seen Peter as a man written like that. So yeah, that's on me. Um, Tim Cudro. Uh, sorry. Tim Cudmore, man, I am not good with names tonight. Uh, He wrote in The Spectator that the bill represents nothing less than 
the most absurdly petty, juvenile, and downright moronic piece of nanny state governmental garbage ever put to paper. That's a bit full uh, on. Just to correct that, Tim, the I is accented. Tim's actually a girl. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> I was just throwing some misinformation on the second one. <laughs> yeah, this is the misinformation bill. Um, I do think it's quite interesting to point out that all the vocal opponents of this pay- of this appear to be right-wing commentators, at least at this point in time. Because, and there might be something in that, because in reality the intentions of this bill are actually far more modest than the embellishment of the so-called Ministry of Truth. Indeed, they're actually so modest that it may come to some surprises many, to many, especially those commentators, uh, that the powers actually don't exist really at all. To put it simply, the bill is designed to ensure that all digital platforms in the industry have systems in place to deal with mis- and disinformation, and that those systems are transparent. It doesn't give the Australian Communications and Media Authority any special ability to request that specific content or posts be removed from online platforms as those commentators have suggested. If the bill were to pass in its current form, it would mean that digital platforms like WeChat, for example, will finally have to come clean with their censorship practices and how they're applying them or not to content aimed at Australian users. It would also mean that digital platforms like Twitter, I refuse to call it X, I'm I'm. I'm calling it Twitter, Uh, that once devoted resources to ensuring trust and safety on their platforms, but are now walking away from those efforts, are made accountable for those decisions. If there's one thing that Elon Musk's stewardship of Twitter has shown, it's that even with absolutionist approach to free speech, content moderation decisions will still need to be made. Inevitably, any embrace of free speech principles soon gives way to the complexities of addressing issues like child exploitation, hate speech, copyright infringement, and other forms of legal compliance. Every free speech Twitter clone has come to this realization, including Parler, Getter, and even Donald Trump's Truth Social. Ironically, the bastions of free speech realize that they actually have to moderate things. So if all digital platforms inevitably engage in some sort of content moderation, why not have some democratic oversight over the process? I mean, that makes sense. The alternative is to stick with a system where uh, interventions uh, against mis- and disinformation already take place every day, but they're done according to internal policies of each different platform, and the decisions are often hidden from their users. What the Combating Misinformation and Disinformation Bill does is make sure that those decisions aren't made behind closed doors. Under the current system, when a platform overreach in their efforts to moderate content, it's only the highest profile cases that actually get attention. For example, Peter Credlin was labelled false information on Facebook by the fact check 
RMIT Fact Lab. But the shadow minister for home affairs and cybersecurity wrote to Facebook's parent company Meta to complain, and even the ABC's Media Watch sided with Credlin. So they were right, but they were they were labelled as false information incorrectly. That we're only talking about that right now because it was such a high profile case. Would it not be better if this ad hoc approach were replaced with something more systematic that applied to all regular members of the public and not just high profile commenters? Under the proposed bill, all the platforms will have to have systems in place to deal with mis and disinformation while also balancing the need for free expression. The risk of the status quo is not just that the platforms will not moderate content enough, but that they overdo it at times as well. When digital platforms refrain from moderating content, harmful content proliferates. We know this. But as platforms become more active in filtering content without publicly disclosing their decision-making, there is an increased risk that legitimate expression will be stifled. Meta executives admitted recently at a Senate committee hearing that they'd gone too far when moderated content on the origins of the COVID-19 virus, for example. They were very quick to shut that down, and I kind of understand why, but at the same time, they've come to realize that, you know, their heavy-handed approach didn't, one, didn't help their their business, but also it, it harmed the public in the long run. In contrast to Australia's uh, modest approach, the EU has their Digital Services Act, which just came into effect last week. Uh, That act heaps multiple requirements on platforms to stop them from spreading mis- and disinformation. Uh, After years of relative laissez-faire policymaking, the world's biggest tech companies are finally becoming subject to more stringent regulation. The risk of regulatory overreach is very real and critics are right to be wary. But the Australian government's proposed solution with its focus on scrutinising the processes of the platform uh, that they have in place to deal with mis- and disinformation is a flexible approach for dealing with a problem that is inevitably going to continue to grow. And honestly, I genuinely think this is one of those situations where we need to be very careful of the sort of regulation that we're putting in place. I don't necessarily agree with the EU's Digital Services Act. I think it might go a little bit far. But I think in its current form, the Australian bill does seem to strike a balance as opposed to outright deciding what is and isn't true. What do you think? This is an interesting one. I can understand that uh, argument as you know, you and I are both moderators of the r slash Australian subreddit as well as a, a couple of other subreddits. So you and I tend to be pretty uh, laissez-faire and open when it comes to, to speech. But despite that, we still have you know, lines beyond which we don't want people to to go now some of them are set by in our case reddit themselves which is analogous to uh the the government in theory using community standards to set a line behind beyond which you won't go yeah for for example yeah 
you know, H-speed inciting violence, that type of thing. As a subreddit, we don't have a, a choice on that. But within that, we have our own uh, our own rules, you know, which basically centre around, look, you know, don't be a dickhead. Uh, that, you know, yeah. That's what they, they essentially distill down to. So arguably, uh, there are some restrictions on speech that we make a decision uh, about. And part of that is is for the experience. So conceptually, I can understand that argument and that approach. Uh, I don't particularly want the government having more powers to impact speech because how they have handled their powers so far shows that they are reckless low credibility unreliable custodians of that power and i don't trust them they haven't shown anything uh to me that shows that they can be be trusted and i think it's a dangerous route to go down to put the power of censoring what you can read and therefore say and therefore think and therefore mentally create the image of how your society is into the hands of increasingly secretive bureaucrats locked in some little freaking office nest somewhere in in Canberra deciding via committee meetings what the latest word or phrase is that is or isn't unacceptable. Now, I do understand from what you were saying, and uh, you did make it clear from from using that uh, article, that the bill as proposed is just the tip. Um, Yeah, it's really uh, on the surface of things, not particularly uh, egregious. It doesn't particularly go far. The problem is it's the it's the nose under the, it's the nose of the camel under the tent. Um, you just don't let it in because that is just the start of it. And I know there's some people who believe that slippery slope is a fallacy, and in some situations it is, but in some situations it's also a reality. And unfortunately, this century, particularly, we've seen an increase in abuse of government power, secrecy and freedoms, and to control our speech, which controls our thoughts, to me is a power that is too great for the bureaucrats to uh, and politicians to hold, in my opinion. That's how, that's how I think this is a dangerous first step. Yeah, look, uh, that's why I kind of feel like the bill as it exists today and let's be honest, it's a draft bill. It's unlikely that its current form is what will end up coming into effect. I do feel like governments around the world need to, you know, social media platforms, we use Reddit as an example. Um, they do hold a lot of control over the content that exists on their platform for good or bad, right? Um, and even, as we said, even um, even uh, things like Truth Social, uh, you know, Donald Trump's version of Twitter that, 
you know, we'll never get in front of free speech and stuff like that. There's obviously a limit. There's always a limit to to free speech, uh, even in America where it's protected under their First Amendment uh, to the Constitution. Uh, it, it's it's there are limitations to it. You know, you can't say that you're you can't threaten the president of the United States publicly. That's not free speech. <laughs> um, there's a lot of things that aren't free speech because you you can't just say whatever you want and not have the consequences of that come back to you, especially from a government's point of view. You know, there is a lot of harmful stuff that you can you can say and that you can influence people in a negative way um, using mis and disinformation. And we've seen this and we've seen this with with countries that don't necessarily unalign to us. Uh, I don't want to say they're, they're enemies. I don't want to go that far. But, you know, countries that are in opposition or, or are rivals to two countries like Australia um, are using these platforms to basically strike out at the public. We've seen this happen in other countries. This happens every time there's an election. Um, you know, th- th- there's misinformation campaigns going on right now about the the upcoming referendum uh, on both Ooh. sides. Yep. So it's all about muddying the waters and things like that. What I like about this bill is is that, it, like you said, it's not they're not trying to be the Ministry of Truth right now. I'm not saying that this isn't a slippery slope type situation that there might be something like that moving forward. But I also think governments move so slowly that I don't think that that would ever really be effective in the long run anyway. Um, Sorry, what, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? I think if you're going to ban things like key phrases and stuff like that, a good example is this this sort of thing happens in China, right, where they ban certain phrases or, or, you know, you can't criticize the government and they they monitor everything and blah, 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 blah. The thing is, is, you know, people, people, especially teenagers and things, are very, very friggin' clever. Uh, They come up with innocuous uh, little phrases um, that mean certain things and that those those you know, almost memes, if you like, travel much, much faster than the government bureaucratic wheels can turn. Do you know what I mean? So I feel like even the quote-unquote ministry of truth um, long-term just isn't that effective because people, the the fashion of uh, the, the getting the information out of their travels quicker. I'm not saying it's not completely ineffective in that, uh, the government is monitoring what its citizens are doing and it's going to stop an uprising and that sort of stuff. But I do think that the information uh, will still find its way out there. What I, And what I like about this is that the government's not even pretending to try and do that, at least, as I said, right now. What they're doing is, hey, Facebook, Reddit, everyone, lay your cards on the table. We want to know how you're doing this and the sorts of things that are okay and that aren't okay and where the lines are. And I kind of like that because that shows, you know, let's take our subreddit, for example. You go onto the subreddit, you can see the rules are listed there in the sidebar uh, and you can read them and they're pretty plainly written. Of course, they're at the discretion of the moderation team. Um, You know, if you say something and it's obviously a joke, even though it may technically break the rules, for example, if no one's getting their feelings hurt, it's fine. Um, So there's a little bit of discretion there, sure, but otherwise we've already laid the cards out. Here's the rules play by the rules and you're going to have a good time. Um, 
if we had a bunch of rules that weren't disclosed, that were hidden, and we said, "Oh, you've broken a rule, but we can't tell you what it is," that's what other that's what other websites do. You know, Twitter really famously was doing that in the past. They wouldn't tell you why they remove your content. YouTube is a big one for it. YouTube removes content every day and doesn't specifically even tell the creator of that content what they did. The algorithm does it. It removes it. Um, and I think companies like YouTube would have a really big problem with this bill because they don't necessarily know uh, the ins and outs of some of those algorithms because they are so complicated. I don't know that they could actually tell you exactly why some of those things are removed. The algorithm just flags it and it's removed before, uh, you know, instantaneously sort of thing. Um, And no human was ever involved in the decision and... How are you going to know what the robot thought if it's not clearly labeled? And I, I'm certain YouTube is a good example because of the amount of content that's uploaded there daily. I'm certain they couldn't tell you for half the reasons why things are removed. It's just that the algorithm does it and they don't have to tell you, so they don't. So it wouldn't surprise me around this bill if we actually saw a misinformation and possibly a disinformation about this bill to try and get it nipped in the bud before it goes through because these companies have a lot of power, they have a lot of control, uh, and there's a lot of money on the line for them to not comply with these sorts of regulations. So, I don't know. This is an interesting one. I'm sort of on the fence. I I hear what you say and I agree with it to a certain point, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, a little bit keeping these massive companies that have so much control over the world right now that are general, you know, largely unregulated, um, giving them a bit more, you know, having them to peel back the curtain a little bit, I think is a good thing. Um, but they're not going to like this at all. Well, yeah, look, I've got two objections to what you're, I've got objections to two things that you're, you're saying. Uh, this, the most recent one was that uh, whether we're going to see a potential bootleggers and Baptists type situation, which we often see with, with big companies. And that um, a- a- analogy meme is uh, a reference to um, when bootleggers and uh, Baptists team up together for a uh, Placing rules against restrictions on uh, on alcohol, I might be stuffing this up, but it's basically when they make um, an an alliance, and the the bootleggers say yes, we're supporting the Baptists because they know that it's going to make it harder for smaller competitors and new entrants into the market. So we'll see whether the likes of Google and YouTube and that come out with some sort of. Um, you know, well, we don't agree with it, but we'd agree with this and putting in those restrictions in order to um, make it harder for their competition. So I'll hold fire on whether they're going to be particularly offended on that one. If if they are, well, then I'll go with you. If they're, if they're not, then I think it's going to be a case of uh, they're probably not going to be super distressed by it. The second one is the incremental incrementalism of it. I get that it's not a big thing, but uh, I think if 1985, if I said to somebody, uh, what do you think about the government uh, opening up our letters, 
having a read to see who it was actually addressed to um, the address of the people, the person it was sent from, the address of the people it was sent to, and also taking note of who you called, when you called them, and where you called from. You know, people back then would have said, well, that is just absolutely absurd. Yet we are at the place now with, uh, despite a bit of a you know, a little bit of a furor about metadata, suddenly it's died down and people have moved on to the next thing, but it's moved forward. And that's this incrementalism that disturbs me about this. In isolation, by itself, it doesn't look that bad. But you zoom out and you think, my God, you know, we've, we've, got, to, we've got to the point where we've skipped over the thing of government collecting all this metadata and now we're arguing about um well just how much should we be telling how much should they be telling us what we can and can't say and therefore think and it's in my opinion a reasonable projection to say in another 25 years that those incremental changes could mean that there is a lot of topics that are to that are acceptable today that will become taboo in the future and i understand your point about People find ways to sort of keep on the edge of that. The problem is they're keeping on the edge of a, a foul and putrid wave that's just moving forward and inexorably drowning freedoms and speech as it just uh, washes away everything before it. And that's what bothers me. And that's where I disagree with you on. Yeah, fair enough. You make a good argument, but we <laughs> must we must move on uh, to this week in Australian history. Okay, this week in Australian history, we're covering the period that covering the dates seventh to the thirteenth of September. Seventh uh, of September, seventeen ninety, Governor Philip is speared in the shoulder while speaking with a group of Indigenous Australians, due to a misunderstanding. <laughs> Poor bugger, that's um, somewhat of a misunderstanding. Um, <laughs> 1795, the HMS Reliance arrives in Sydney, carrying the new Governor John Hunter, the Aboriginal Benalong, and the explorers Matthew Flinders and George Bass. So, yeah, a few well-known names there. Yeah. Nine- yeah. 1936, Tasmania's last remaining thylacine, a, a Tasmanian tiger, dies in the Hobart Zoo. So I don't know. People may well have seen the um, old grainy film of that. Um, yeah. Look, who knows whether they'll ever resurrect it using... Um, well, there are people that swear they're still out there, though I don't think there's ever been any confirm confirmation of that, so... I think they run with the uh, Pumas. Um, 1996, National Threatened Species Day was first held and the date was chosen in memory of the last thylacine. September 8, 1855, Queen Victoria signs an order in council to change the name of Van Diemen's Land to Tasmania. 1854, Australia becomes a founding member of the South East Asia Treaty Organisation, CETO. CETO, which is 
basically meant to be th- like th- our version of NATO. It never really. Ah. Yeah. So CETA is one of these funny quirks of history that most people never even realize it happened. Um, it's, it's also the main reason the Vietnam War happened because South Vietnam was part of CETO. Uh, and so America was, was, uh, a lot like had, they had a defensive alliance. So they said that they would respond and it all kind of went from there. But CETO kind of didn't work the way it was supposed to. And, and it kind of just fell apart basically um if you are interested just google ceto there's a really good i think it's a wikipedia article all about it and read up about it but yeah well well that was news to me i didn't um i didn't pursue that acronym but that's very useful uh september 8 2006 motor racing champion peter brock dies in a race in perth uh, September 9th, 1946, Trans Australia Airlines makes its first flight. I uh, can't remember when TAA stopped, but it was a while back now, last century sometime. Yeah, I think it was in the 90s. Yeah, something like that. 2004, a terrorist attack on the Australian embassy in Jakarta kills 10 Indonesians and injures 100 other people. Uh, September 10th. 1919, publisher and journalist J.F. Archibald dies, and people will probably know him uh, from the Archibald Prize. I mean, there's other things. I think he was involved in the Bulletin and, and other stuff, but uh, yeah, his name lives on in the, the Archibald Prize. Uh, 1996, Pauline Hanson makes her first speech to the House of Representatives. explain. Yeah, because that's been a while. Uh, 2003, Bali bomber Imam Samudra is sentenced to death in Indonesia. Uh, there was a bombing on 12th of October uh, 2002 in uh, Kuta. That was, that's an Indonesian island of Bali. That attack killed 202 people, including 88 Australians, 38 Indonesians, 23 Britons, and people have met more than 20 other nationalities, and then another 209 people were injured and i can't say that i'm shedding a hell of a lot of tears for him being sentenced to death Nah, he deserved it yeah uh september 11th 1803 john bowen with a party of 48 founded the first settlement in van diemen's land near the derwent river 1940 uh, not 1940 1914 australian troops land in german new guinea uh, 1928, Charles Kingsford Smith completes the first flight across the Tasman, uh, landed at the Wigram Aerodrome, and I didn't look up where Wigram is. I'm sorry. I'll have to uh, leave that to your own fingers. Uh, it's in Christchurch. Oh, okay. In, Thank you. New Zealand, Christchurch. Yep. Ah. 1947, the first radio isotopes were exported from the U- exported from the United States, arrive in Canberra. Uh, that was the radio isotopes being um, exported represented the U.S. government's efforts. They were uh, harnessing the power of the atom for peace, advancing. I was going to say that is this yeah. part of the Atoms for Peace program? Yeah, oh, right. that's it's got a name, Atoms for Peace. Yeah. 
Oh, that was a yeah. big post. There was part of the Cold War, America trying to, you know, spread uh, their sort of ideology and capitalism, democracy and all that. And it came with nuclear power, but, you know, it was all, it's all Cold War stuff. It's, it, it is very interesting, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 2000, the World Economic Forum is held in Melbourne and the S11 movement uh, organises protests lasting four days. September, September, <laughs> September 12th, 1854, Lieutenant Governor of Victoria, Charles Hotham, opens Flinders Street Station, which is the first city railway, railway in Australia. Which surprised me. You now I think the I think the emphasis being on city railway. Um, yeah, but look, I suppose something had to be somewhere had to be first. But that um, well, because Flinders Street is like in the middle of Melbourne, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I wonder if it looks like what it does today because it's such an iconic building in Melbourne. I feel like it's sort of Melbourne's almost only iconic major landmark, like old. Major landmark like Sydney has a Harbour Bridge and the Opera House and stuff like that. Melbourne doesn't really have a lot of that, but Flinders Street Station is kind mm. of it in my mind, at least. Yes, there's probably a lot of Melbourneians screaming at us right now. Yeah, probably, um, probably going, "What about this? What about this?" Well, yeah, yeah. you know, if it can't be that iconic because I don't <laughs> remember it, so. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, look, fair enough. I was just running through my head. Yeah, this was it. This. Uh, was it St. Mary's Cathedral opposite that? Um, uh, the Forum Theatre. Well, yeah, okay. Well, that could be a th- <laughs> research for another time. That's, uh, yeah, that's an interesting comment. Uh, September 11th, 1803, John Bowen with a party of 48 found – oh, sorry, I've just read that um, out. Blah, blah, blah. September 12th is where I meant to jump to. Um, continue with, I should say. 1918, uh, George Reid, the fourth Prime Minister of Australia, dies. 2005, England wins the Ashes back from Australia for the first time since 1987. Um, I don't care about cricket, but I do remember that because it was it was such a big deal at the time. Uh, again, still don't care, but... Yeah. People, people made a big deal out of it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I was aware of the brouhaha as well. Um, and look, you know, if you're into it, good luck to you. Uh, September thirteenth, uh, nineteen sixty nine. Cricketer Shane Warne is born. Uh, yeah. yeah. Two thousand and one. Anset Airlines collapses. And our last one for September 13, I'll put it slightly out of date order because I thought this was the most interesting um, of the one on the day. 1828, robbers break into the vault of the Bank of Australasia in Sydney. This was the first bank robbery in Australia. Um, There was five robbers, William Blackstone, George Farrell, James Dingle, John Wilford, alias Crichton, and Valentine Rourke. They tunnelled through a sewage drain, got into the Bank of Australia, and stole 
£14,000 worth of promissory notes and coin. Crime wasn't discovered until the, the next day. Now, I looked up on um, the inflation calendar or inflation calculator. Oh, yeah. It, it only went back as far as 1901. So this robbery happened in 1828. But in 1901, the 14,000 pounds was valued at 2.4 million. So... So it's, so it's probably well over three million. Yep. Maybe even more than that. Wow. So it was it was a significant amount of money they got then. Bloody oath. That's Why that's not? right. Uh, so although suspicions immediately fell on Blackstone, Farrell, and Dingle, they escaped uh, an indictment until Blackstone turned to informer two years later. By then, Crichton was dead. Rourke had left the country, and only uh, Dingle and Farrell faced the Supreme Court. On June uh, 10th, June 1831, they were both found guilty, but ex- escaped the val- the gallows because of convict attaint, which is apparently a, a legal concern as to whether or not Blackstone's evidence was admissible because of um, his previous death sentence. So. I thought that was the most interesting. It was a big robbery, Australia's first robbery, and I'm pretty sure that after that robbery, they would have cracked a few beers. Definitely. They definitely would have cracked a few beers. Uh, So, this week's Forex bottle top question. I've actually got two because I think the first one is reasonably easy and I think you'll get it. Who lit the Olympic flame at the 2000 Summer Olympics held in Sydney? Kathy Freeman. Yeah, it yeah. had to be. It was, yeah. Uh, now, this one, I think you'll probably get, but maybe not. This this is a little bit more difficult. Do you, do, uh, sorry, you just, do you remember her lighting that and how bloody freezing cold it was and how she just, how staunchly and stoically... She stood there, even though it was. It was. I think there was might have been rain, or there was there was some really cold uh, thing for it. If I'm remembering correctly, I thought it was yeah. an impressive effort. Yeah, um, she's she's a bloody legend, Kathy yep. Freeman. Um, and yeah, she, she was uh, freezing cold. Uh, she wore the. Uh, I don't think during that, but I do remember during the Olympics, I think when she was actually um, uh, like participating in the athletic events and stuff, I think she she would wear, she wore this like long sleeved, I don't know, suit. I just remember her running in like really long sleeves and I thought it was really, really weird because it was some new suit technology or something. And um, I don't think, I don't think you're allowed to do it anymore. I don't like the running suits and stuff that they had at the Olympics and that, but she did really, really well. She did. She smashed it. Um, Yeah. I have a lot of time and respect for, for Kathy Freeman. Anyway. Uh, which large mythical creature from Aboriginal mythology is said to lurk in swamps, billabongs, and creeks? And if you don't get it, as soon as I tell you, you're going to go, ah, of course. Oh, I almost was going to say rainbow serpent, but it's not that. Um... No. 
starts with a B. I'll give you a tip. No, Bunyip, of course. Yeah. God, I, bun- I could, I could, I was thinking Yowie for some reason. I knew it was something Chupacabra type thing. Bunyip, yeah, Bunyip, oh. Bunyip, Bunyip. We went uh, when we used to live in used to live in country New South Wales in the town. There we went to. Uh, it was a display at at Wagga Wagga Wagga, and oh god, you know we were we were young. My sister probably she would have only been uh, what are we talking about there six or something. And there was it was one of those family these those family stories. But you went into this dark room and you know, put your, it was 10 cents or 5 cents or 20 cents, something in, in there, into the, the machine. And this, this bunyip would rise up slowly out of this, <laughs> this black pool. And her, her scream of terror as she just went fleeing from the, the bunyip exhibition, it was obviously it was amusing to myself and my brother because we're bloody. <laughs> Brothers and distressing to distressing to mum and dad, but I can just remember this roar, this like oh, this, and her uh, her eyes sort of popping as soon as this this grotesque thing started emerging from the water. She was off. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the good old bunyip. We we were camping a while ago in an area. Uh, the national park is full of deer. Um, and if you've never heard a deer before, um, especially at night during the rut, they can be very kind of freaky to hear when they sort of, it's almost like scream at night sometimes. Um, and it, it happened and, and we happened to be right next to a creek and the kids were like, what was that? And I was like, oh, that's a bunyip. And (laughs) they, they didn't know what a bunyip was. So I kind of had to explain it a bit and that, but um, to be fair, it was the wrong thing to say because we were still there for another few nights and that really freaked them out. But you know, the story of the bunyip, like, like a lot of these uh, mythological, mythological creatures, uh, I think they call them like cryptids and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of fun to be had in, in those sort of stories and the mythology of it all and all on that. that so, And, and children the, are like cats. They love to be scared. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's there's <laughs> a lot of fun to be had sitting around the campfire telling bunyip stories and stuff like that. So especially if you're near a body of water. So, um, so thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us at the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as this helps us out immensely. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember... At r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thank you, and tell your mum I love her. <laughs> See you, TK. See ya. <laughs> <laughs>